I knew the end of the story when I read this headline in the Washington Post. Wall Street pulled its financing, stocks have plummeted, but private prisons still thrive. It was referring to the year-long effort by banks to distance themselves from private prisons. J.P. Morgan, Bank of America, Wells Fargo, and other large public banks had announced all they would stop funding private prisons. The stocks for Core Civic and Geo Group, companies that control all the private facilities in the U.S. that hold prisoners, plummeted. The abandonment by banks came after years of scrutiny and attacks and political turmoil that all questioned the core function of the industry. But what is the core function of a publicly traded private prison company? A company of the private sector that provides a good to a public institution, the government. Who are they most responsible to? Prisoners? The government? Or are they responsible to investors? Hello and welcome to the long form of ESG Now. I'm your host, Mike DiCibato, and this week we are going to take you through the four stages of a private company that provides a social good to the public. It will be a play in four acts, a dismissal of me boy Shakespeare. The first act will be the golden phase, the growth period. The second will be the acceptance phase, a calm period. The third will be the friction stage, a period that requires control else the thing will burn itself up. And the fourth act will be a sobering phase, a period where an existential question is posed. That's right, I'm inverting the classic story. I'm going to end with the complicated stuff, and I will answer the question of whether it's sustainable for a private sector company to provide a public good. Thanks for joining us. Stay tuned. Okay, like I said, this is going to be an investment play in 4X. I like to bring some thespian thinking to investing, and there's been very little gratitude for this. Now, a good play has a nice and simple shape. It has happiness and sadness and a beginning and goes on into entropy. But since this story is one that uses private prisons as a case study, you could say everything is grim for the people incarcerated, and so the plot itself is a bit macabre. But for the industry itself, that's a different story. Act 1, Growth. And what soared higher than the 1980s in the U.S.? Dubbed the Decade of Greed, it was a time when a conservative adherent in Ronald Reagan had just been elected. But great as our tax burden is, it has not kept pace with public spending. For decades, we have piled deficit upon deficit, mortgaging our future and our children's future for the temporary convenience of the present. Why then should we think that collectively, as a nation, we're not bound by that same limitation? We must act today in order to preserve tomorrow. That speech, which was provided by the Reagan Presidential Library, was the beginning of Reagan's ambitions to transfer power away from the public sector to the private. To achieve this, Reagan decided one thing he would do would expand a war on drugs that his predecessor Richard Nixon had put into place, even though the program had an explicit but secret intention, as his administration later admitted, 
to disrupt black organizers and the anti-war left. Reagan went about expanding the drug war by passing legislation to increase the spending on law enforcement and the penalties for drug crimes, such as the Comprehensive Crime Control Act of 1984. Drugs are menacing our society. They're threatening our values and undercutting our institutions. They're killing our children. From the beginning of our administration, we've taken strong steps to do something about this horror. Tonight, I can report to you that we've made much progress. 37 federal agencies are working together in a vigorous national effort. And by next year, our spending for drug law enforcement will have more than tripled from its 1981 levels. These tougher sentencing laws and the increased violent crime rate in the U.S. inflated the prison population rather precipitously. When Reagan was elected in 1981, there was about 1.8 million people in the correctional system, and after he left office in 1989, that number had ballooned to 4.1 million, according to the Bureau of Justice Statistics. There was a need to house and serve all these prisoners, a job usually reserved for the government. But upon election, as I said, Reagan promised a new way forward, one that limited the role governments played in all parts of our society. In this present crisis, government is not the solution to our problem. Government is the problem. And so a new day was born. And some people saw an ally in Reagan's New Deal. Some of them got together and decided to start the first private prison company in the world. Their names were Thomas Beasley, Dr. R. Krantz, and T. Don Hutto, and they called their company the Corrections Corporation of America, or CCA for short, which now is actually a public company called CoreCivic. The company was established on a promise to more efficiently and effectively house the nation's prisoners. Soon after it was created, Reagan passed his act in 1984, and they were off to the races. The next year saw another private prison company started called the Geo Group. And in Reagan's America, they grew. Oh, how they grew. And investors came into the game, building the companies up to ubiquity. And everyone kind of accepted that a system once provided by the government was being provided by a private sector company. Act 2, Acceptance. By 2016, 128,300 people, roughly 1 in 12 U.S. prisoners, were incarcerated in private lockups. That is an increase of 47% from the year 2000, according to the Bureau of Justice Statistics. And by our count, Core Civic, once CCA, houses 43% of those 128,300 people. Geo Group houses the rest. Other services started to creep up and join in on the prison race. Private phone companies charged prisoners to make phone calls to family and friends. Private health care is used to treat prisoners with injuries of all kinds. Private banks charge prisoners a percentage for keeping money to buy stuff from the prison commissary. So the whole system was pretty profitable from an investor perspective. According to their latest filings, the GEO Group made $145 million USD in net income in 2018 and CoreCivic made $168 million. And in the U.S., the income is steady, as the nation has the largest rates of incarceration globally. But when you pay a company to maintain a public service, how do you measure its success? It's not like a prison is the same as Walmart. If Walmart has more sales than last quarter, and it keeps its expenses down, and it doesn't piss off its contractors, then the company is successful. What about GeoGroup and CoreCivic? How do we view their success? Okay, so the industry has two basic rationales for existing. Number one, we can do it cheaper. 
And number two, we can do it better. So basically they think they can do more cost-effective operations and superior correctional and rehabilitative services, programs and resources than the government can. That's Bentley Kaplan doing the voice acting for Andrew Young, who is one of our analysts that covers the private prison industry, but is actually away on travel, and I couldn't get a mic into his face. The effectiveness of a prison system can basically be evaluated on prison conditions and rehabilitation outcomes. And we can look at quality facilities for immigrant detention facilities. Indeed, Core Civic's external facing document called What We Do, What We Don't Do backs Andrew's claims. Here's what it says. We help our government partners fulfill their critical missions by providing cost-effective solutions that address serious challenges such as reducing recidivism, aging infrastructure, and housing vulnerable populations in a safe, humane environment. Okay, I know, Andrew, that is actually Bentley just said this, but I quickly want to go through the list of tenets of success for a private prison company. They are cost-effectiveness, reducing recidivism. By the way, recidivism is the tendency for a convicted criminal to reoffend, so you want that number to be low. Better facilities, a safer and more humane environment. Sounds like a great list, but to me, this is a list of goals that is more like a marketing plan rather than an operational plan. And so, as we do with most of our analysis at MSCI ESG Research, we are going to discuss whether a private prison, really any private sector company that provides a public service, is capable of doing that in the constraints of the market. And it all starts off with a proper alignment of incentives, or a lack thereof. Act 3. Friction. Now here's where we get to the conflict of the story. And any good conflict requires two parties, a cause and a reaction. And before we get to the reaction, the political and bank abandonment, remember, let's first lay out the contours of the problem. And the conflict with private prisons begins with the contract agreements between them and their government backers because there is a friction built into the contract because it is based on occupied bed per night. And given the inherent incentive to maximize occupancy levels, in other words, get as many people in as they can, and because these prisons have got a really strong incentive to focus on maximizing occupancy levels, basically that's making sure they have as many prisoners in their prisons as they can have, you can imagine that there's going to be some weird incentives to try and keep prisoners in their prisons for as long as possible. So there's some concerning anecdotal evidence that basically prisoners that are doing these minor um, that are committing minor infractions are getting substantially increased prison times. A 2017 paper from the University of Wisconsin records additional time served in private prisons at around 90 days. Note the difference between the stated goals of the company and the way the company makes money. The goals are many, but the contract incentives are singular. The contract would be better stated as, we help our government partners fulfill their critical mission by housing prisoners. Which wouldn't be a problem if the company wasn't providing a public service. Because in privatizing a public service, companies can become profitable, but they are also extremely vulnerable if they stop providing that public service and just concentrate on profits. Quickly imagine if a privately contracted waste management company didn't have a contract stipulation for where they put the trash they picked up, rather they were implicitly incentivized to just get rid of the trash as cheaply as possible. There might be some friction due to a misalignment of incentives. Terms of the contract are critical. If the contract is incentivizing more prisoners being held for longer periods of time, that's what we're going to get. If the contract is incentivizing lowered recidivism, 
that's much more likely. Rick Marshall, a dedicated researcher on governance and incentives here at MSCI ESG Research. So I think the initial responsibility lies with the government to, to create a contract that's going to achieve the goals that it wants to see achieved. But there's also some responsibility on the part of the company, and in particular the board, to oversee these kinds of questions and say, is this sustainable? Is this business model going to work? Does this have a um, strong reputational gain for the company, or does it put us at risk? Those kind of questions have to be asked at the board level. So the contract establishes what the incentives are for the company, and then it's up to the company internally to establish what incentives it wants to put in place for executives. Um, again, if the goal is reduced recidivism, that should be explicit in the terms of the employment contract or the incentive plan that the company's implemented. Incentivize the behavior that you want to achieve, and you're more likely to get it. So now the conflict is set in motion, and when reports start to arise that question whether private prisons really are living up to the end of their deal, things get dicey. In 1996, the General Accounting Office compared public and private prisons in five states, Texas, California, Tennessee, New Mexico, and Washington, and found little difference in costs. Then in the early aughts, the American Civil Liberties Union started bringing litigation against private prison companies claiming there were rampant issues with prisoner safety and welfare, including crumpling facilities. Okay, so remember, we are working toward a general discussion of what can happen to a private sector company that provides a public service. And to do that, we are going to have to walk down this general road that a public service provider will take when it senses, like a hawk, that it is getting into a conflict situation. And the first thing it will do is build up its defenses. The first defense was the academics or industry experts. It's always good to have someone with a lot of letters after their name batting for your cause. The tobacco industry had the Gradient Corporation, a scientific consulting firm that employs a lot of scientists and researchers for hire, and has been instrumental in delaying any new regulations against tobacco. The pharmaceutical industry pays millions to medical professionals and medical researchers, according to the Federal Open Payments Database. The red meat industry recently had Bradley Johnston, an epidemiologist at Dale House University who published a report this year that said, no wait, red meat actually is pretty okay for you. And for private prisons, there was this one big academic that was the perfect spokesman for the industry during its early issues. His name is Charles W. Thomas, and he was a criminologist and the director of the Private Corrections Project at the University of Florida Gainesville. So Thomas wrote extensively on the economic benefits of the private prison industry. Thomas wrote research that refuted the claims that private prisons weren't really that cost effective because you understand if that pillar fell, the industry would be a tough sell to cash strapped governments. And it was also a good idea because it is actually hard to definitively prove which type of prison is cheaper, a private one or a public one. So how do the numbers stack up? Well, it's difficult to compare directly the effectiveness of private and public prisons. But the Reason Foundation think tank estimated that basically a public facility costs about $48.42 per day per prisoner compared to $53.02 a day for a private prisoner. And other academic studies and even the U.S. government itself have failed to find a cost-saving aspect of private facilities. Private prisons also typically house the least costly inmates, basically the cheapest ones, because they're healthier and less violent. And any cost savings are alleged to come at the expense of inmate well-being. 
In other words, cutting corners on quality. So because of this difference in types of prisoner populations and general cost surveys, Thomas could step into the fray and argue for the private prison industry. And he had a pretty good run of it for a while. In fact, there's this great New York Times article written in 1995 called Four Privately Run Prisons, New Evidence of Success, in which Thomas is quoted widely on the cost effectiveness and growth of the industry. But the problem is you can't just have academics on your side because there needs to be policy changes for you to be able to provide those public services. And studies really only move policy when they are attached to a politician. So you go get a second defense pillar politicians. This is an important one because politicians allocate the funds to the bureaucrats that write up the contracts to do business with a privately run company that is providing a public service. So you've got to get them on your side. And how do you do that? With money, silly. And during the early aughts, when questions were surrounding the prison industry, the main players decided to double their contributions. According to the Federal Open Payments Database, the industry gave 351000 in USD to members of the U.S. Senate and Congress in 2000, and then gave 552000 in 2002. And this is the bigger number. In 2004 and 2005, the industry doubled its lobbying efforts from the year previous from $2 million to 4.2 million USD, which actually coincided with the largest increase in privately held prisoners in federal custody since the year 2000, when, according to the Bureau of Justice Statistics, the survey on private prisons became standardized. Also, it might be good to get some of the people that know how to navigate the legal and government contracts on your board. And looking at our most recent data, out of eight people on its board, Geo Group currently has four lawyers three ex-civil servants, including the former head of the Immigration and Customs Enforcement Federal Agency, also known as ICE, and a former warden. But in the early aughts, when it was ensuring it continued to be a going concern, it was trying to get its foot in the door, the company, Geo Group, had a former Marine Corps commander, two retired Air Force generals, a former undersecretary of the Air Force, the ex-governor of Illinois, the former assistant U.S. attorney general, and an immigration and nationalization services worker, according to Corp Watch. So now the private sector company with the public good has its second pillar, and then it can get to the third. And these guys are excitable, let me tell you. They are the investors. Oh yes, a strong analyst lobbying team can be quite helpful. And really all you need to attract traditional investors to your business is to be profitable and to have good fundamentals. Except of course if you're an ESG analyst. And private prisons have always had a steady stream of income coming in. As I said earlier, the industry earned hundreds of millions of dollars in 2018, but it has been earning greenbacks for a while now. In 2005, the year its lobbying efforts doubled, Geo Group had a net income of $6 million. A year later, $28 million. In 2008, after the financial crisis had hit, the company nearly doubled its income, from $38 million in 2007 to $62 million in 2008. This is all, of course, in U.S. currency. CoreCivic's rise was even more dramatic. In 2005, it had a net income of $50 million. The next year, $100 million. And as the financial crisis ravaged all, the company grew from $126 million in 2007 to $151 million in 2008. And I hate to do this to you, but we have to get into the ponderous financial metrics now because it makes it easier to compare companies between each other. And there's this one metric 
called the gross margin, which is used to assess a company's financial health and business model by telling the amount of money left over from sales after deducting the cost of goods sold. And basically, a good or high gross margin is anything above 20%. And since 2008, Geo Group has had a gross margin over 20%. It was actually 25% in 2018. And CoreCivic has had it even better. It's been at or near 30% since 2008, and it actually ended 2018 with a 28% gross margin. And to top it all off, each of these two companies have a stable credit rating from credit rating agencies. This is good for everybody. And I tell you this stuff not to bore you, but because it means the company's fundamentals were solid. They were making a stable income. And guess who loves a stable income? Investors. Banks love a stable income even more. So, what in the world happened? Well, at first, people just started to question the academics that were researching this topic. In the late 90s, people started to wonder whether Charles Thomas, the academic that spoke so glowingly of the private prison industry, was really on the level. Not just any people either, police people, experts in the prison game, specifically the Florida Police Benevolent Association, which alleged that Thomas was not being entirely truthful about his intent when conducting research at the University of Florida. And it turns out that they were right. Thomas was actually on the board of the Corporate Corrections of America Prison Realty Trust. And this was something Thomas hadn't disclosed in his own writing or to the journalists at the New York Times, which is a big no-no in the academic research world. So the police association alerted the Florida Commission on ethics of Thomas's conflict of interest, and he was fined 20,000 in US and forced to retire from his university post in 1999. So this embarrassment left the company open. It's the same thing that happened to Exxon once it was reported by Inside Climate News that Exxon had actually known carbon emissions were a long-term risk to their business and the world, but had deliberately obfuscated its findings by employing scientists dubbed climate skeptics, according to a peer-reviewed paper in IOP Science. But in the case of private prisons, the loss of their main academic backer left them vulnerable to skeptics. And then came the bellwether, the concerned leader of the investor flock, a cohort that we at MSCI ESG Research have a lot of contact with. It's the socially conscious investors. And in the early 2000s, those type of investors, the ones that were really into investment screens that would exclude industries they didn't like, started to build coalitions against the private prison companies. And actually, like investment screens themselves, the first movers against the private prisons were religious groups. The Catholic Bishops' Resolution, the Presbyterian Church USA, the United Methodist Church, the Episcopal Diocese of Newark, all issued shareholder rebukes of the industry in the early aughts, worrying, as the Presbyterian Church USA put it, that if the goal of for-profit prisons is earning a profit for their shareholders, then there is this basic and fundamental conflict with the concept of rehabilitation as the ultimate goal of the prison system. I have seen uh, investors put a full-on restriction around private prisons. I've also seen investors just want to know what companies are actually involved in private prisons. That's Joseph Williams, my colleague at MSCI ESG Research that knows most about different investment screens. And I wanted to bring him in to kind of give more background on why someone would screen out a private prison or any other company for that matter. And, uh, you know, see what their exposure to it is and then uh, go through an engagement process with those companies trying to see what their particular operations are, you know, trying to see uh, if 
they are operating the prisons in a humane and in a humane way, or is a conflict between the profit that the private prison is supposed to be generating and the care of the inmates. If that conflict is causing, uh, you know, a, a degradation of the of the of uh, the overall services. In a associative way, investment screens can be a bellwether for upcoming problems. Because a long time after those initial religious outcries, in March of 2016, there was some movement on the private prison engagement front. GeoGroup filed proxy materials that discussed one shareholder proposal which asked the company to provide investors with an independent human rights report to be published on its website annually in May. GEO Group Board recommended that shareholders vote down this proposal, which actually was not an unusual move, as many companies recommend shareholders vote against the resolutions that they bring about. But anyway, soon after GEO Group filed that proxy, the political defense pillar was hit with a body blow. In 2016, Sally Yates, Obama's deputy attorney general, commissioned a memo that called for first the reduction and ultimately the end of private prisons and federal detention. And in the memo, Yates noted that three weeks prior, the Obama administration had denied a contract extension for 1,200 detainee beds and reduced a contract awarded to a private prison from 10,800 to 3,600 detainee beds. Because, Yates noted, that private prisons were not more cost-effective, they were not safer, and they did not lower recidivism rates. Okay, yes, the Trump administration did quickly rescind the order in 2017, but it was an existential shaking of the industry, and it pushed the stock of these two major players, CoreCivic and Geo Group, down 40%. It also led to the closure of a number of private detention facilities. And it also forced companies to diversify into a form of detention that comes with considerably more reputational risk than if you were just locking up your normal law and order SVU criminal. They started to detain immigrants. So the U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement Agency, that's ICE for those in the know, had an average of about 42,000 immigrants per day in detention in 2018. And that's the highest number since 2001. And GEO and CoreCivic are stepping up to capture the growth. CoreCivic extended its facility in San Diego, California in 2018, and the GEO Group added over 1,000 beds in 2018 in just two facilities. That's in Folkestone, Georgia and Montgomery, Alabama. CoreCivic manages nine ICE and five U.S. Marshal Services facilities, with a total of 17,646 beds. And the GEO Group has 12 ICE and five U.S. Marshal facilities, totaling 17,891 beds. And see, the problem with what Andrew Bentley noted was as soon as media reports started showing children separated from families and child psychologists were testifying on the news that the trauma those children underwent in the detention facilities that bore Geo Group and CoreCivic were none less than disastrous, larger parties started to distance themselves from the industry. In November 2018, the California State's Teachers Retirement System announced plans to divest it's $12.1 million in U.S. dollars of holdings from private prison operators Geo Group and CoreCivic within six months of the announcement. The group CEO Christopher Ailman explained this move by saying that the private prison industry's human rights issues and involvement with immigration detention centers became too much to bear. The announcement was preceded by divestments from the New Jersey Pension Fund and the Chicago Public School Teachers Pension and Retirement Fund. Then in 2019, California 
one of the fastest growing markets for private prison companies. Remember, San Diego had just opened up an ICE detention facility run by Geo Group, announced it was going to cut all ties with the private prison industry after Governor Gavin Newsom signed a law that barred the California Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation from entering into or renewing a contract with a private company to run a state prison after January 1st, 2020. See, the thing is, Gavin ran on this idea that private prisons contributed to over-incarceration, including those that incarcerate California inmates and those that detain immigrants and asylum seekers. It was soon after that the banks left. And they stated in a sanitized term that they evaluated the sector and decided they would no longer bank the private prison industry. Act four, the climax. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, okay, I know it's rich, but remember, this is the climax of my play, not of the story that goes on. For private prisons, they are starting to see a need to diversify their assets and change their incentive structures. Because in New Zealand and Australia, there are these two private prisons run by Geo Group that have contracts which provide bonuses if they beat government-run facilities at reducing recidivism. This is a step in the right direction. And in June 2019, CoreCivic published its first-ever ESG report, providing some insight into its rehabilitation programs and targets. This is another step towards a more long-term, sustainable model of business. And CoreCivic has actually invested nearly $300 million U.S. million to acquire halfway houses used as a transition point between prison and release. And CoreCivic has begun lobbying for policies that will reduce recidivism. And it's been giving to politicians who endorse those policies. Geo Group has done the same. They recently purchased a re-entry facility called Alabama Therapeutic Education Facility to provide training, drug treatment, and resources for re-entry. But the big investor risk that this case study exposed will remain for companies that provide a public service but operate in the private sector. Because once the effectiveness of that public service comes into question, then the question becomes which stakeholder is a company for? Is it to help the public good? Is it to help people? Or is it to make money? Because the scale of the story goes beyond prisons. There are private healthcare companies such as pharmaceutical manufacturers that are losing their market share due to a very public crisis they help make. There are for-profit education facilities that are now coming into question because their students are graduating and not getting the jobs that those education institutions promised or ranking higher in incomes. The companies in these sectors all have the same problems. They get into a contract or they set up a business model that left the explicit requirement, the public service, to chance. Maybe the way forward is for investors to look at those companies, to find those companies, those with revenue from providing public services, and then see how they are incentivized to create that public service. Because if the market demands a short-term gain to satisfy certain investors, and that gain creates friction between the public good and the company, then a society can shift and an investment can be in trouble. And we will have to have a, the big collective think about what we want from a private company that provides a public service, the friction of which we are currently witnessing. That's it for the long-form version of ESG Now. I'm your host, Mike DiCibato, and I wanted to thank Andrew Young, Bentley Kaplan, Rick Marshall, Joseph Williams, Megan Eastman, and everybody else who helped with this podcast. And I wanted to thank you for listening. I hope you like what you heard. 
If you did, please rate and review us and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. It's always appreciated. Thanks so much, and I'll talk to you soon on the weekly version of ESG Now. MSCI ESG Research podcast is provided by MSCI Inc.'s subsidiary, MSCI ESG Research LLC, a registered investment advisor under the Investment Advisors Act of 1940. And this recording and data mentioned herein has not been submitted to and/or received approval from the United States Securities and Exchange Commission or any other regulatory body. The analysis discussed should not be taken as an indication or guarantee of any future performance, analysis, forecast, or prediction. The information contained in this recording is not for reproduction in whole or in part without prior written permission from MSCI ESG Research. None of the discussion or analysis put forth in this recording constitutes an offer to buy or sell or a promotion or recommendation of any security, financial instrument, or product or trading strategy. Further, none of the information is intended to constitute investment advice or recommendation to make or refrain from making any kind of investment decision and may not be relied on as such. The information provided here is as is, and the user of the information assumes the entire risk of any use it may make or permit to be made of the information. Thank you.